how, how can I say believe in this system? It works for you. Go get a degree. Then they'll follow the law. And I'm trying to get these young men to believe in the system, and the system is being violated right now. What's going on, beautiful people? This is Detravius Bathia with Read the Fine Print, the podcast. The audio that you heard up top is not from this interview. It's actually from YouTube, and it's audio from my very special guest, Jaya Person Lin. The reason I included the audio that wasn't from my interview or my discussion with him was because we recorded this interview slash discussion about a week and a half ago, and it was before the killing of the murder of George Floyd. And the reason why I included someone else's audio slash content in my podcast is I wanted you to get a taste of what type of work Jaya Person Lynn is putting in in these quote unquote streets. We got into it partially in our interview, but there was so much this so much to discuss about his past, what he's currently doing and offshoots, his influence, and everything else that we did not get a chance to really, really dive deep into the social and political things that are going on in the world. He has promised to come back on a on, on a podcast so we can discuss those things. So hopefully, you'll get more from him. But until the meantime, please like, rate, and review, and share the podcast. Um... That would be greatly appreciated. And if you can and you find it in your heart and you like what I'm doing, donate or become a supporter. That always helps. This this podcast costs money, although I'm not doing it for the money at this time. <laughs> I'm trying to cash out like Joe Rogan one day. Hopefully not. Nah, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm just doing it because I love doing the conversations that I'm having. I'm loving the progress. I'm loving the process. So, I mean, if I get a big check at the end, that's cool. But in the meantime, your support financial will be greatly appreciated. And if you can't support that way, just please like, rate, review, and or share the podcast. I hope you like it. Uh, please give me the feedback on what you think. And until the next time, peace. delineates between involuntary servitude and slavery so the person that steals a car if they're a white person a latino person an asian person and they go to jail this is a human being who has done wrong and is here to be rehabilitated when a descendant of american slave commits the same crime he or she is now a slave and subject to this inhumane treatment State your name for the record, counselor. Oh, man. You know, Jai personally, the abolitionist, a.k.a. the Lincoln lawyer on the IG. Uh, just out here practicing criminal defense, a little civil rights and whatnot. Uh, got the referral practice. Uh, that's, that's going pretty well for the stuff I don't do. And, man, I'm just um, 
out there trying to do the things to figure it out. Uh, you know, that social engineer, I'm sorry, that, that social engineer um, aspect that they introduced us to at Howard Law, uh, I really took that to heart and really trying, you know, make my country a better place. And I've been through a lot of different mentalities surrounding that. Um, like one time it was like, you know, my aunt and uncle are law enforcement. So instead of saying, fuck the police, it's going to be, you know, you bad police. You guys are tainting the, the badge of my aunt and uncle, making them more, making their jobs more difficult. So I tried yeah. going that route and uh, that ain't work out. So now it's more, I don't, <laughs> you know, I ain't really saying just F police wholeheartedly, but um, the the whole construct. I think needs to be torn down and rebuilt. Okay. So where's uh, where's out here? Majority... What's that? No, I said where's out here? Where's out here? Oh, Los Angeles, here. California. I'm from I'm from the second district of Los Angeles County. I didn't learn about uh, county supervisorial districts until about '08. Um, but there's five districts in LA County. Uh, the second district has South Central, Watts, Compton, um, stops at Long Beach, uh, Carson, and then it goes all the way north to Hollywood. Okay. Um, so it's uh, it's crazy. Compton and Hollywood are in the same district. Uh, but I've lived in the cities of Los Angeles and Inglewood. Um, and so on some LA stuff, I'm from Inglewood. That's where I went to middle school, high school. We moved out uh, of Inglewood when I was in college. Um, so, you know, for the LA tip and where, where people know me from LA, they consider me an Inglewood cat. Uh, but now I've lived about the same amount of time in LA. Uh, but I live literally about a mile from where I used to live because uh, LA surrounds Inglewood on three sides. So it's all the same area. So my most accurate is I'm from the second district of LA County. Yeah, because the neighborhood thing is real serious and um on on in Cali, the West Coast. Yeah, I'll be going to call. Yeah, yeah. Neighborhood. Even you know, lawyer, thirty-seven years old, you still are considerate about what neighborhoods you go into and whatnot. And that's the like it's cool because you know, ten years ago, like Jay-Z and Puffy and Dre and them were like the big homies of the culture. Uh, but there was nobody really older than them um, 10 years ago that we could look up to. You know, that's when Jay-Z was coming out of retirement <laughs> uh, yeah. around that time period, right? Yeah, exactly right. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, so when you look at that, uh, it's dope that, you know, being approaching 40, you could still be considered, you know, little homie in the culture right because you got these 50 year olds that's still popping so as long as jay-z and diddy and dre and cuban and is still relevant then we're you know younger but gotcha. the, the bad side about that is that you know cats still act like they in their 20s when they you know in their 30s and uh it, it you still have cats you know around my age getting killed on some gang stuff and yeah. so that's the, the downside to it. So the upside, we still get to feel young, as old as we are. And the downside is we got to deal with the stuff young people deal with. 
Yeah, talk about your family life. How, what your parents do for a living? Because because your brother's on the scene too. We I get him on. You you probably plug me with him, but we ain't gonna talk about him too much because he can speak for himself. But y'all got at least online. I ain't gonna say different personalities, but um, I mean it's different. But I don't want to act like it's on polar opposites. Y'all just got different visions. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, we're this is the thing. We were raised Pan Africanists. Meaning okay. our worldview was we're black and we're part of a, a global community of black people. And that's where we were raised. That's how we were raised, even down to the hyphenated last name, right? Like you see a lot of Africans. Like when I looked on the Kimbe Matumbo card, uh, it was like one card they had his whole name. Dude got like 11 names. But uh, apparently a lot of that's due to you know, you take on um, the names of, of both families. It's not just completely a patriarchal society. Okay. So even on down to that aspect, uh, that's just how we were raised. And so we were like raised on struggle. So from the earliest times in the 80s that I have remembrances of political activity, uh, I recall we could not wear Reeboks. We could not go to Shell gas stations. Um, and the reason was because they supported apartheid. They did the business Reebok with the apartheid regime. I didn't know uh, that. So, so, yeah, that's how, you know, I was, that's like preschool, elementary school, right? So that's just what I was raised into. I remember we had to do a a project in the third grade on a historical figure and I chose Malcolm X um, and uh, did my project on him. And so my father, uh, he has a PhD from UCLA, University of California in Los, in Los Angeles in Pan-African Studies and Musicology. Uh, so he's a LA native, he's now 76 years old, born and raised out here. He was never too much for the the organization, right? So he, he was never a panther, never in the Nation of Islam, though I, I grew up not eating pork. Uh, and, you know, obviously, he, or definitely wasn't in the US organization. Um, but he was still active in the late 60s. He ran a community center, it was the Malcolm X Center. He was on the Urban League. Uh, they just lost their building recently, but uh, on their building, on that building, there's a plaque and uh, from when it was founded. And he was like second vice president of the LA Urban League when um, it opened up. And then my mom has a master's in journalism from, uh, says my internet connection is unstable. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, I got you. You was going in now, but it's good for the most part. Okay. So my mom has a master's degree in journalism from USC, the University of Southern California. Okay. Uh, and okay. while she was there, they started the black newspaper, uh, Us All We. Um, and they actually met. Dick Gregory went to give a speech at USC. And uh, my dad was going to record it. He claims he brought three hours worth of uh, tape because he thought, you know, nobody's going to talk more than three hours. But Dick Gregory, yes, yeah, spoke for six hours. 
And so the story goes, he, uh, he, my dad knew Willis Edwards, who was the head of like student services at USC at the time. So he was like, man, who's that sister that was recording? Let me get her info so I can get the rest of it. And you know, the rest is history. They're, they're still together. And that was like late 70s when that happened. So uh, yeah, man, that's, that's been my thing since birth, just born into that um, liberation struggle for our people. Gotcha. So I'm taking notes. But, and, and my mom's from Linden, New Jersey. I just Oh, I didn't know that, that, man. Yeah. I didn't yeah, know that, yeah. yeah. So I actually, I was real close. Mm-hmm. I was this close to, to um, growing up a Jersey dude. When I was about three, uh, things were rough economically on this side. Um, My parents weren't together, like they didn't live together at that point. Um, And so my mom had moved back to New Jersey. I thought we were visiting until I was like in my 20s and I learned we had actually moved. And even though I was three, I knew it was some kind of something because I remember going to a school and my brother checking in school. But uh-huh. then October hit and the weather got to changing and moms just couldn't go back to that <laughs> after spending that much time on the West Coast. So, you know, she got a call, somebody had a job for her, her other friend had an apartment for her, and it just worked out. And gotcha. that's how I got back to LA. But uh, from about, I think it was probably about May to, uh, October, we had went back to New Jersey. Gotcha. All right, so I'm taking notes. So if you see me divert from the screen, it's not that I'm paying attention. I'm taking notes so I can get, get back to some points that you uh, talked about. Um, so your brother older than you. How many siblings do you have? You have your brother and who else? Four older brothers. So they, they'll tell you they have five brothers. Okay. Uh, but I have four biological older brothers. Uh, my brother, Jareem, that you're talking about, he's, um, me and him have the same mother and father. And then the okay. oldest three, Robbie, Island, so they have a different mother. Gotcha. So that's, okay. uh, that was unique because, you know, the at the time that my dad met my mom, um, you know, my brother that's right above Jareen was still like a small yeah, you breaking my up. baby. So that, that relationship, yeah, they were breaking up. So that's, you know, I got two different moms in there. What, like uh, August 7th, one was born August 79. The other was born December 80. Got you. So your, your pops is busy, huh? Yeah, at that time period. That time period. He was the so, only child he had to make up for. <laughs> yeah, I'm an only child too. So I have a so it's interesting because I didn't know your your um your family was so well educated. Your, your pops had to be one of the first people in America with a PhD in um um I mean possibly. He had some uh, great mentors, Dr. Yosef Ben, ben Jackman. Yeah, yeah, Dr. Ben, yeah. Dr. Ben, yeah, I met him as a youngster. He was one of my dad's advisors, um, and it was it was it was deep. You know, I used to, I would only go up to UCLA on like the black events. So I low key thought UCLA was black because my world was black. I didn't realize how black LA wasn't uh-huh. until I went to Hampton, 
And then I came back and coming from the, the airport on the freeway, I'm looking to the left and to the right and there ain't hardly no black people and none of the cars <laughs> on the freeway. You know, I'm coming back from black college, you know, in Hampton, Virginia, black city. Yeah. Um, so it, it that's that was the first time I realized like LA wasn't a black city. Um, but I will say at the time the of ninety-two when the, we've it was some people called it the riots. In my household, we always called it the uprising. Okay. Uh, and and just a quick note on that, my dad did not allow us to loot, but he did take us out and drive us around just to see uh, what was going on. And it was a unique time and in my young life at nine years old, it was still the most powerful I had ever felt being black uh, mm -hmm. because I was already conscious of, of what was going on um, to a certain degree to the, to the level a nine year old can understand it. Yeah. Uh, so um, yeah, that uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, so yeah, just looking at at that. Uh, I'm sorry. What was that point we were on? No, I was saying um, you was going. You went on tangent. I was saying your father had to be one of the uh, one of the first people oh, to yeah. be in um, Pan African studies. Yeah, yeah, and I'm not sure about that. But you know, looking at it, early '80s, you're you're probably right. It was about he got his degree. It was like maybe '86, '86. All right, so a little, little later. All right, and, so he uh, still was that. He still was at the around that first wave, though. That still was kind of early on for Pan African studies. Yeah, yeah, he recognized yeah. institutions like that. Yeah, because his his elders, like I said, Doctor Ben, who was not American, yeah. um, uh, uh, Doctor Claude Anderson um, was like a contemporary, I believe. Uh, Dr. John Henry Clark was a mentor. Yeah. Um, my dad actually did his uh, autobiography, like edited and whatnot. Spent a lot oh, of time with him. He got credit for it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah my is my favorite, one of my favorite writers, man. I got to check that out. Yeah, yeah, Dr. John Henry Clark, man. My pops got a book called First Word. Um, and most of his books, or pretty much all of his books, are more so... Uh, interviews that he's done that he's turned into narratives okay. um and so that's uh kind of how he did and but first word was great francis quest welsing uh I believe claude anderson um uh my man's name that did that came before Columbus. his name slips my mind uh, at the uh, moment uh, but uh, uh uh um start with a c um yeah. No, no, no. Are uh, you talking about Dr. Ivan Van Sertima? Van Sertima, yeah. He, he taught at Rutgers. He was there at Rutgers when I was at Rutgers. Okay, yeah. So yeah. those were the, the kind of people in my pop's book, Dr. John Henry Clark, Dr. Ben. Uh, so first word, I think, is one of the best. Like, if you don't know nothing about the history, about the culture, uh, it's probably one of the best starts for you to have and then go research each of the people's works who are in the book. I read his book, they came before Columbus. He was at Rutgers. Uh, I personally didn't take his class because by the time I got there, he was um he was dealing with uh, dementia or something. So he was barely teaching the class, but they still had his class on the book. So he would come in like, 
once a week, once every two weeks when he was teaching the class. I think his wife was basically took over the class, but he's like a god basically in the African studies department at, at Rutgers University. He's a god in the Pan African African thought period. Yeah, like he he yeah, I say yeah. god because that's yeah. we don't really use them type of. But he you know what I mean. He's he's like he's yeah a, I know exactly. He, what he's you on mean. Mount Rushmore. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's from that whole era, and that's why he he did the book compiling it. Um, and so I gotta check it, was, it out. So what's his, what's, his, what's he's a person or he's a lint? Which one is he? Lynn. My dad is a Lynn. But by the okay. time he wrote the book, it was personal. And he hyphenated as well. Okay. Once What's the first name? I'm going to check it out. Uh, and then going back to the night, he used to have a show called uh, uh, Spirit Flight. It was a weekly show on KPFK, which is the uh, public radio station run by Pacifica. Um, but he had a show, African Mental Liberation Weekend. That was the annual shows, like 30 hours over a weekend. We play interviews, speeches, music from um, black people all around the world. Uh, but his last, he, he used to do it annually till he played a speech about the uh, Jewish involvement in the slave trade. And so the JDL came down on the radio station, put enough pressure on him to where they relieved him of duties. Um, yeah from doing that show, even though it was all factual. You know, it was all factual, but nobody likes having their dirty laundry air. Yeah, see, this is good information. See, this this, this type of background information, I don't know who knew this background information at, because you was a year ahead of me at at, um, at Howard. Yeah. I mean, obviously for us, but you know, for listeners that, (laughs) they don't know that. So you you had kind of sort of different, you know, I, law school set up the classes and then it's broken down by section. That really becoming your people that you are, your click. And, the, and then this was the first time I was in school where, like, your age didn't determine, like, your grade, basically. Yeah. Like, what, it, you know, we got there and people in my class a whole 15 years younger than me. I was one of the youngest in the school. I was, like, the fifth or sixth youngest person my one year because I was 21. And then you had a, with a, because of my November birthday, so you had a couple people, you know, born in December. And then uh, one Alexis, she was like 20 when she started law oh, school. So she yeah. couldn't even like go to happy hour with us until her, yeah, her birthday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but yeah, that's, uh, yeah, it's, it's unique because, you know, I was. Yeah, you broke, you broke. Hampton University experience, which was great for me. Um, to Howard Law, which was, uh, D.C. was just a different dynamic, something I, I wasn't used to. Um, yeah. And I can't say I was fully mature enough. I, I had the intellectual capacity, yeah. but for professional school, not graduate school, professional school, yeah. there's a certain level of professionalism and maturity that, you know, you need to take that on with that I can't say I, I fully had at the moment. But I'm happy yeah, I got done, you know. Yeah, yeah, but that, that man, he was only 21 years old, man. Like, you know what I'm saying? Think about when you see 21-year-olds now, you would like, you should be shaking your head, like. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know what I'm saying? But that was you. We all, because we, what ends up happening is we end up becoming our parents, and we be like, nah, I wasn't like that when I was 21. But nah, you was like that. You know what I'm saying? When you be saying, you might not, obviously, yeah, the was like, like one on this end. You know what I'm saying? Spectrums and everything. Everybody kind of sort of in the middle. That's what you had median and average for. But now when you're 21, I see 21-year-olds, man, I was like, 
Remember, I, said, I came with the braids, you know. Yeah, you had a braid for a long time. You had a braid so you graduated, right? No, nah, I cut them the morning before the the first day of classes, 3L year. Yeah, and it was okay. crazy because I my my braider, uh, she went to she was from Compton, but she went to Howard undergrad. Okay. But she graduated, and so I got back a little early, and I, I was looking for a braider. And the people on Georgia Avenue was trying to charge like 30, 40 bucks for straight back. She was charging me 10 yeah. and I had to get the lineup. So it was like, man, for braids, braid, unbraid, wash, blow dry, rebraid, and the lineup, I'm giving up like six hours a week. So yeah. I just, and like a lot of money. So that morning I looked in the mirror, I was like, man, I don't, I don't like the hairstyle no more. But didn't nobody make me cut my hair. Yeah. I just want to be clear on that. I did it because I wanted to. Yeah, there was, it, was, it was no, it was no, uh, what's what I'm looking for? It wasn't like, it was basically, you. it wasn't nothing real deep about it. You just got tired of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what it was. But um, well, people I mean, were saying, you know, somebody, maybe if I would have done it. No, about to say, people were saying that somebody forced you to do it. That's what, that was the word on the street? No, it's just that, it, it could be that kind of perception, right? Like, you know, I'm looking for a job now. I got the, the job with the public defender's office when I still had braids. Uh, so, uh, but it was, and I just got back from, from South Africa. Okay. And that was, you know, a whole total different mindset in this whole blackness, pan-African movement, actually spending time on the continent. I'm like, I don't need braids to prove I'm black no more because I was that was part of it for me oh gosh yeah. yeah and and you know um just coming up on the west coast like DJ quick Snoop sugar free like a lot of people I looked up to had hair gosh so that was that was it. That was coming after Africa man I stopped wearing baggy clothes I mean, I still had, I couldn't get a whole new wardrobe, but ever since then, I started wearing <laughs> fitted jeans and fitted shirts. You know, I, I was back in 06, so I was on the forefront of the fitted clothes movement. You know, a lot of y'all was still in back clothes up until 2010. I can't co-sign that if you was on it or not, so I'm going to let you rock with it, because I, I can't dispute it, because I don't remember. <laughs> nah, it's, Delicious in that alley behind Doc building over there. You know the building with the sign. They're searching the car. I've been out here for about 20 minutes asking for the reasonable suspicion for the detention. They have these young men being detained, all of them. They haven't told me the reasonable suspicion or the probable cause for the search. They disallowed me from investigating the case. I haven't been able to do my investigation. And they said I couldn't do my investigation under threat of being arrested for Penal Code Section 148A1. Um, what about the, uh, the the South African experience made you switch up uh, your thoughts on blackness, how you dressed, your, your hair? What, what was it about that experience? Well, I got there, right, and... I'm like, oh, I'm going to be able to braid my hair. This is Africa, right? Yeah. But apparently, 
West Africans do most of the braiding, like all throughout Africa, at least the, in South Africa. Uh-huh. Um, so I just figured every African girl knew how to braid. Nah, that wasn't the case. Um, but what blew my mind was um, a couple things. First, like all the black people wore fitted clothes. Like it wasn't like baggy. The people that wore baggy clothes were the uh, coloreds because the coloreds, and for one and for two, that was the first time I was in a society that didn't look at me as black at first glance. Uh-huh. They looked at me as colored. Colored, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that that threw me off. Like, yeah, I, yeah. go ahead. To a very significant, I'm like, man, I'm black, bro. But, yeah. you know, it ended up being cool because the colors is like, yeah, whatever you are, yeah, we got some black in us too, but uh, we're colored and so are you. But, you know, you... You claim whatever you want to claim, but just know you're one of us. <laughs> so I was accepted by that community. Yeah. And then, you know, the one thing, like, we we may have saw, like, the Shaka Zulu movie, but other than that, we didn't see much about South African culture yeah. uh, besides, like, apartheid and whatnot. So we don't know, you know, what they're talking about so much culturally on the street level. Mm-hmm. But our movies, they did see. So they did see the Fridays, they knew about our music and all of that. So they knew going in, the black people knew once they realized I was an American that I identified as black. So, you know, I was able to be accepted by them as well. Uh, So seeing that and seeing how all the black people have fitted clothes and I got all this baggy stuff and we we hanging out um, and it just humbled me in a lot of ways because that was my first time out the country. Like I, I had a layover in London. It was long, so I went to a hotel, got some sleep, but that was it. Uh, you know, I can't really say I visited London. Okay. But when I touched down in South Africa, you know, that was my first time outside the U.S. Um, and so just seeing that black people still ran the culture as far as what was cool and whatnot, but it was house. Is, is the black South African culture as far as musically. Yeah. Right? It's, it's not hip hop. They mess with hip hop, but it's like a song every once in a while that'll come out that everybody rock to. But when the hip hop sets come on, is when like people go to the bathroom, get mm-hmm. their drink, you know, something like that. Whereas, you know, for me, when I got to Hampton, that was kind of like when they played go go, right? Yeah. Like that's when most people chill. The DC people go nuts, yeah. but uh, everybody else is like, I, right, you know, that's I might like sexy lady, but after that, you know, I ain't rocking too hard <laughs> to the to the go go. You know, I, yeah. I rock with go go, but I'm just yeah. as an example. Yeah, I'm um, not fair. Uh-huh. And so uh, I thought that was dope that you know black people still were the main cultural influencers, but it wasn't hip hop. They were doing their own thing. And I also thought it was dope that the colors identified with us because they look at Snoop Dogg, they look at Will Smith, and they like, nah, them dudes is colored. <laughs> they were the buzz. And so yeah. just having that connection, it gave me, um, now it, it really made me feel like a, a Pan-African, right? Like now I'm part of a greater global community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it also reminded me like I am who I am. I don't have to try to be anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so 
like I learned burgers are American culture. Like that's American food is burgers and fried chicken and whatnot. Uh-huh. Um, at least the way we fry it, right? Um, yeah. And so having that and then seeing, you know, everybody dressing the way they dress. And then the young lady I was dealing with, we were walking through the mall and she was like, just try these on. And I looked, there was some diesel jeans. They was like fitted, not <laughs> skinny jeans. I want to be clear. I don't wear skinny jeans, but fitted jeans. Yeah. And so I was like, all right, man, let me try this on. I tried it on and I was like, oh snap, this look kind of good. Yeah. And that's that's kind of history. On the, on the fashion tip, that's where it took it. It just felt more grown up, you know. Okay. And then um, it just had me once again understand like I don't I don't need braids to show I'm down. I'm black. I am who I am. Mm-hmm. And I, I'd say the the yeah, it was a combination of the African students and the colored students, and then some of the Indian students as well. Uh, the, the Muslim Indian students in particular that showed a lot of love and it just showed me that everybody was okay being themselves more so than here where we're, we have to work so hard to assimilate because our, you know, in our communities, not so much, but once we try and go out and go further, we have to do a lot of that assimilation. People get they practice their interview voice and cut their hair yeah. and, all, and all that good stuff. Yes. I, I, yeah, I was in South Africa um, in 04, so two years before you went. And um, for me, I didn't have one of them like crazy light bulb moments that people people talk about. But yeah. for me, it hit me like it's the first time that I saw like um, it's the first time like you, you said something that, that I, I 100% relate to is that I wasn't defined by my race first. Yeah, you know I'm saying like they define people by a tribe first. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And then, yeah. and then you might be considered black or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like if they, yeah. if they, if that person even goes that deep, you know what I'm saying? And it's interesting yeah. because you got the color designation. I automatically got the he black. Yeah. We had the black native, you know what I'm saying? Because I'm darker than you, so they was automatically yeah. like, "Yo, he's that." And what I got like. I got still got like the whole like um because I was there for two weeks. You was like you was there way longer than I was. Six weeks, yeah. yeah, yeah. I was there for two. It was more than two. It was like eight, seventeen, eight, something like that. But two weeks because a couple of those days we just recovering from the flight. You know what I'm saying? Because it's been like yeah. twenty something hours. Um, but my experience was um I got a lot of love, but I also got like a lot of like people looking at you crazy. Then you, I mean, they know you're American in a way by your by the way you walk and talk, whatever. Like they can kind of yeah. say that. You, well, at least not. You're not from South Africa. They know of top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Then you get like, but I did get like the treatment, like the racist. You know, the racism was hitting me too. Like, like damn, like these jokers from, from the white folks, white folks and the colors and the Indians a little bit. Oh uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And that's that's what I don't experience in South Africa so much due to how I look. Right, yeah, I don't yeah. get treated like how black people get treated. Yeah. And what I'll say is, when I first went in 06, and I went back in, oh, for New Year's 09. So I landed like December 31st, 08. Okay. And, you know, had New Year's out there in 09 uh, and, and stayed out there through inauguration, through Obama's inauguration. So okay. I left like 22nd. Um, but uh, in, that, in that time period, 
when I first got to South Africa, I was like, damn, the U.S. is way advanced in racial relations, right? Like, I just felt like, yeah. yeah, but in that two and a half year period from when I got back, I'm like, damn, it's been a lot of progress uh, from, from what I saw. Uh, and then I, and that first time I'd only went to Cape Town, okay. went to a couple days in Durban. And so the second trip is when I got to spend a little bit of time in Johannesburg. And that was real dope. That was the first time I really got to see like the black wealth in South Africa. Yeah. Uh, Cause in Cape Town, it ain't, you know, you got the townships. That was also the first time I saw like that level of poverty. Like we yeah. don't have the tent city. We don't have the sheet metal shacks that everybody makes. And what tripped me out, one of the students, cause I went through the Howard Law Study Abroad summer program. Um, one of the students in our classrooms were like, I was like, man, you, you live in the township? I'm like amazed that you yeah. be in law school living in the township. Yeah. And he was like, yes, yes, one of those shacks. I have one, it's, it's my own, it's mine. And he said it was such pride. Yeah. I was like, oh shit. But at the time I didn't own nothing, right? So it's like <laughs> you got a piece of property and I don't have, and all that kind of stuff kind of humbled me. Um, when I saw, you know, my contemporaries over there, you know, electricity would go out. You want to study late at night. For us, it's nothing. We had the law school campus. Security wasn't like that. You know, out there, it's barbed wire, security around everything. Everything just secure. Um, and, and we didn't have that. We, and so it humbled me. And when I got back, it was no car that was, you know, too messed up for me to drive. If it got me from point A to point B, it was cool. I didn't really care so much about designer clothing that much. Um, just all that materialism, it, w it went out the door a bit because I, I saw a whole bunch of people making the most out of very little. And that, that really humbled me. Yeah. Um, but we, um, the other thing though, we just had a ball like six weeks and then, you know the exchange rate was like eight to one that was my first time out the country so my family you know after the the cost of the program i had like four thousand dollars of spending money you know and i'm there for six weeks so you know seven eight to one that's like thirty thousand rand for yeah. six weeks yeah that's crazy yeah and then yeah, the club, Hennessy was like 21 grand. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was crazy. When I was there, the change rate was like seven to one when I was there. Yeah. It was crazy. Like, you order, you go out eat and order this big meal. You was like, yo, because you be thinking about the price in your head. Like, yo, which joker not going to be like, yo, let's split this bill. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, bill come, it'd be like 21 grand. I'm like, yo, son, <laughs> that's like $3. <laughs> that's like $7. Yo, it's like crazy. Hey, first time at a bar with the people in the program, it was like, oh, yeah, I got this round. Don't worry. He added, it was like six drinks. He was like, yeah, 70 rand. Like, I just bought 10, six drinks for $10. $10, yeah, yeah, it was crazy. Uh, we was on. Was we was crazy. on. We had a great time, man. We, yeah. that, that was, that's what it was. Oh, and then um, the, the, the confidence from, like, you know, finally having a sexy accent, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, it was a bad one at the mall. I was just talking. She was like, oh, my God. You have the <laughs> I've ever heard. And I was yeah. like, me? <laughs> so yeah. that was, yeah, it was just eye-opening. Like, I, I opened my eyes to a lot. One, first of all, I thought international travel was for, like, super rich people. 
right? I didn't even know it was something that I could really do. I could even get myself involved in. So it was just a, a, an amazing eye-opening experience. And now, you know, I, I really look at myself as a global citizen. Yeah, and it let me know I I don't have to just stay here. There's another place I could live. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the earth is your turf, yeah. So it's like um that was my that was my uh I guess that was my second time out of the country. My first time out of the country was um I went to uh Jamaica and I saw that extreme poverty in Jamaica, and mm. then when I went to uh South Africa, so I was I had already got exposed to the extreme poverty. Yeah. So that wasn't like oh shit to me. Um. Uh, but when I went to South Africa, like I said, the, the thing that really stuck out was like, yo, it's the first time that, you know, black people are not black people. Like, you know what I'm saying? As we think of black people in America, like they just be like, yo, I'm Kosa, I'm Zulu, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and yeah. They, and they, they real prideful too. Like, yo, this is my culture. Boom, boom. We, and, the, and the thing that we, the way we set it up, it was with an honor society that I went. It was called a mission on diplomacy. So we went, we met with like um, government, government officials, um, people that ran NGOs. So we went to uh, Durban, Pretoria, Johannesburg, um, Cape Town, Cape Town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was so we went. We went. So we was flying while we was in South Africa. So it was kind. Of, it was interesting. Like I said, and it's see, like, like I said, a race relations is 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 the same, but it's different. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And you could yeah. tell like who lives where by how the township or the community looks, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you like, like that's a black, that's quote-unquote oh, yeah. black township. You know what I'm saying? That, yeah, that, that's the color town, there is, at least, I've never seen, like, the upscale black neighborhood overall. Now, within the townships, there's nicer homes and nicer areas within a particular township. Yeah. But, like, you know, the hills right over the city, you know, I haven't seen any black. Nah, there's no black people there. Yeah, when I, um, so, uh, like I said, we met with the governor of Pigeon. They, they, they talk about the economics of it all, like how, like, I think at the time, like, white people still, like, own, like, 98% of the wealth in the country or something crazy when I was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, but, you know, still they had the black economic, uh, it was like the BEE. And so things are, ties are turning a little bit but you know the wine lands the farmlands a lot of those are still wide on the, the things that really can get you to that uh economic wealth got you see now see having this conversation with you makes me really understand your politics more because we don't get this part of this the podcast is really to dig deep about the fine print obviously you're a lawyer too like so i always say people get caught up by not reading the fine print and yeah. You know, obviously that relates to contracts, but that relates to the broader things in life too. You know what I'm saying? Like, so what people don't tell you about being in a relationship or being in a dad. So that's how we try to, so the, the, my attempt is to actually have these deeper conversations about like what make people who they are or whatever the subject is. You know what I'm saying? So like, I would never got this from you because we never sat down and had this conversation in law school for whatever reason or reason, yeah, yeah, you know what I'm yeah. saying? Um, I wasn't thinking about that. I was you know, looking at, hey man, she bad. You got a fatty. <laughs> oh yeah, we got class. All right, cool. Got class. <laughs> class is a second thought, right? Yeah. So talk about um. So you practice criminal law. So I don't know how much time you got. I don't. I don't want to keep you up too crazy. Um, I got time, I got time today. Bye. 
We could walk through it though, because I got a little bit of time too. We could walk, we could we could take a little slower. So um so you go you get to Howard. So when you got the Howard Law, so you go to Hampton. What made you go to Hampton? Um I had three criteria for going to a uh, college. It was a black school, number one, in Virginia with prestige. So Why Virginia? Uh, and you're from Cali. Why you pick Virginia? Because my mother's mother and father are both from Virginia. So in gotcha. 97, I went to a family reunion. I had been to a family reunion as a small child and loved it. Um, this might have been like... 89, 90 was my first time on the East Coast. And then I went in 97, my uh, sophomore year in high school, the summer right before my sophomore year in high school. And gotcha. just having all that family out there was like, man, this is where I want to go. Before that, I was like, you know, when I still had football dreams, I wanted to go play for Eddie Robinson at Grambling. So I was going to a black college. That was That's why that was number one. Yo, how you had football? How you had football dreams, yo? How tall are you? <laughs> hey man, hey, I'm I'm gonna tell you this. Uh, I bought a suit for mm -hmm. my eighth grade graduation. Uh -huh. Um, double-breasted, cool suit. I also wore it to my high school graduation <laughs> as well as my uh, Hampton University graduation. So you start growing in eighth grade, <laughs> pretty much. So at that time. You know, I was like, okay, you know, that next growth spurt going to hit, I'm going to hit like 5'8", five, 5'9", five, I'm going to be a cold little running back. And, yeah. you know, I was, at the time, I was starting offense and defense. I was I was good. I just, everybody else grew and I didn't, so I went another gotcha. route. Gotcha. Um, uh, and then even when I got back, uh, I was still on football mode, right, because I was still a sophomore. I, I was starting both ways. Um so I looked on the top 25 and I saw Virginia Tech. I'm like, all right, cool, I'm gonna go there. Yeah. And I saw the uh, mascot was a Hokie. And I was like, ain't no way in hell I'll ever call myself a Hokie. <laughs> so <laughs> that was out. <laughs> and so, you know, I went back uh, to my, my uh, plan, which was black college in Virginia with prestige. And then everybody told me how beautiful the campus was, beautiful the women were. And, it just worked out for me perfectly because I had the family support and my class was like the first class that LA and California came in significant numbers. You know, it was like maybe oh, really? something. And yeah. I was the type once I, I, I somehow got word of other people that were going to Hampton in LA. So I was going up to different high schools like, yo, who on campus going to Hampton? Yeah. I was meeting people beforehand, just getting connected. And so that's what got me out there. It was, it was the family connection, number one, you know, the scholarship. I, I got a partial academic scholarship and was unique. I, you know, at the time, I had no idea about the financial part of it. Um, I just know when I got into Hampton and I told everybody I was going to Hampton, my mom the whole time was like, how the hell are we going to pay for this? Yeah. And uh, I got a a letter saying I got a partial scholarship yeah. and my mom walked in and I'm, it wasn't nothing to me cause I was going anyway. Yeah. But uh, when I gave her that letter, when I showed her the letter, I, I'll never forget. She sat down on the couch and started crying. Mm. And I was like, hell you crying for her? But in her mind, she was stressing how we were going to pay for this. She had no idea. And I'm running around telling everybody I'm going. Oh, that was a big relief for her. And so it uh 
I, it was happy. And man, when I first got there, I got like four or five. And just so you understand how big my family is out there, my grandfather, my mother's father, had like 20-something brothers and sisters Damn. And uh, down in Emporia. And if you've ever like drove down to North Carolina or whatnot on 95, you've driven through Emporia, it's a speed trap. A lot of people know about it, uh, especially in the Virginia, North Carolina area as a speed trap. Mm-hmm. But um, we had a, they, they knew I was coming and there's like four or five August birthdays. So the family got together for a big celebration you know, Bush was a crab. And you you seen Antoine Fisher, right? Yeah. Yeah, so that scene where he walk in and the whole family is here and greeting them, I kind of had that low-key. When I walked in, and it was like 50, 60 people there. This your cousin. And a lot of these people I had seen, because it was 2000 when I got out there, so it was 97. So it was about three years after that family reunion. So I had seen, but this was even more people uh, than before. And so, you know, I was it, was, it was love for me straight in there. Now, you know, a Californian transitioning to the East Coast, that was a little difficult. Yeah, that was I can imagine. Because I, I hear like the, um, like, so, so my first, like, uh, introduction, for the lack of better words, like Cali, like life was, I'm sure most East Coast people, Northeast people was like boys in the hood. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Minister Society. Well, gangster rap, obviously. NWA. Before NWA, we did have we 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 Westnay had a couple songs that made it. Um Ice T. Yeah. You know what I'm saying, but NWA was like the big one last. It was like for yeah. us, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't want to let me speak for myself, because I don't want to speak for everybody. But for us, like obviously it was West Coast rappers that was before that, but NWA was like, oh Yeah, this, that's what blew it up. Yeah, that shit is different. Like they on some they, they, whatever they talk about, I don't know nothing what they talk about. Like, I started learning about guns, you know what I'm saying? Like, I seen guns before. I never heard, like, my uncle had guns, and I've seen guns. I've seen people shoot guns. And, like, the first time I ever seen a gun, I was like, really, yeah, my grandmother had a gun. But somebody that showed me a gun my age was this guy named Terrell. He lived directly across the street from me. He was, like, nine years old. Like, we had to be, like, 11. And he had, he had, like, a little 25. And he was younger than me. He was, like, nine. He was, like, yo, I got a gun. And I was, like, yo. Yeah, you think he bullshit, right? Yeah. So uh, we go into the and uh, we live in an apartment building. We go in the building, and he just pulled it out. He had it in a plastic bag and showed me, and I was like, "Damn!" It was like that's like the first time I seen a gun. Somebody my age, well, my peer, that's young as hell though. But you you don't think about this stuff like that could have been a, that could have happened. That could have been deadly. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he's nine years old, I'm eleven. He just showing me y'all like, not being shown this by adults. Y'all, exactly. y'all showing each other. He's showing me. Yeah, he ended up getting murdered too, man. But years later, he was like one of the first people. He's a real, real big supporter of me. When I, when I, when I told him I was going to law school, he was like, yo, I'm going to need a good attorney, man. I told this story before, but I, I got something to podcast to tell it again. And he was just like, when I told him I was going to law school, I got in. He was like, yo, because he was in the streets. His mom, I ain't going to put his mom out there, but he was in the streets. And they would say he was running this building like that was like a block away from where we grew up. They say he was making millions. I don't know how true it is, but they say he was making millions. And he was like, yo, I'm glad you're going. I need a good lawyer, man. That's what's up. And the last time I hung out with him, he took me to the bar around the corner. We had a drink. Going back to South Africa, he had a drink. And he was like, yo, just let me know. But then what's crazy was, um, so I get to law school. You know what I'm saying? I still, I still was going, I still used to see him, but I, I didn't finish. 
And then like, when I graduated law school, one of my other friends, um, he reached out to me like, yo, do you, um, do you do appeals? I need, a, he needed a good appeal. So I was like, I don't do appeals. I don't do appellate work. And he was like, all right. So I'm like, I'll, I'll, you know, reach out to my network and see who does it. And he was like, yeah, cause my brother got the, the murder charge. He, and he, uh, you know, they, you know, he did him dirty. So I didn't even, th- I didn't even look at the case or nothing. Cause I was like, yo, I don't need to do a pill case. So this is my, this is my other homie from across town. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So I'm not even, so my boy Terrell got killed and I, he, he gave me the thing. My other boy across town, love him too. And he like, yo, my brother, I, ne- I didn't know his brother. He was like, yeah, my brother got this murder charge, whatever, whoop, 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 whoop. I'm like, all right, cool. I don't do that. Then like, for whatever, some other reason, I was like, yo, let me find out what happened to Terrell case. Cause I know he got killed, but I didn't know who was, it was solved or not. You know, a lot of times we get killed, should be unsolved for years, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Or forever. Yeah. Find out it was my boy brother that killed him. I was like, damn, yo. I'm like, I don't even know if I could have even stopped that because that was some street shit anyway. But I'm like, yo, that's crazy that I knew both of them. I mean, that's what Patterson is mad small anyway. So it was just yeah. like, yo, it's crazy that he reached out. So my one of the biggest supporters early on was Terrell. I'm like, yo, you were lost. Then his brother, one of one of the first people that hit me up, like to do a case, is like the dude that killed him. Yeah, well, his brother killed him. Like, yo, my brother, D. I'm like, that's, that's how I go in this game, man. Um, my very first murder trial, uh, you know, we we had a good run. A uh, client got found not guilty on the murder charges, and the jury went ten to two for not guilty on the on the manslaughter. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, my client ultimately took six years, but that was only because uh, the co-defendant in that case had um, taken 26 years, and he ain't he ain't do nothing. He he was like the co-defendant it was one gun, one person shot. So that was why we went to trial. We like you got him in prison. He admitted to being a shooter. Ain't no way. And and I actually. This is, you know, probably the first, like, big boy lawyer's thing I ever did um, because it was being prosecuted by the uh, hardcore gang unit. Now, what's, what's funny about that is Johnny Cochran, in his career, uh, the, the DA at the time, um, I believe it was Garcetti, uh, he said, hey, man, you're doing all that talking. You want to do something, why don't you come to DA's office? You'll be number three in the DA's office. And if you feel like, you know, you can help. So, bam, he did that three-year contract. And that was one of the things he did in the DA's office to start the hardcore gang unit because, mm. you know, in the 90s, yeah, uh, and that, that might have even been the late 80s, but it really ramped up. But the 80s and 90s, man, the murder race in L.A., I mean, really all across the nation, but definitely in L.A., it was, it was like 2,000 bodies a year in L.A. County. Now it's down to 600. Yeah. Um, just so you can, and it still like feels like it's a lot, yeah, uh, yeah, but yeah. just imagine it was over three times what it is now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, they they started the hardcore gang unit, and that was like a Johnny Cochran construct, right? Gotcha. Um, so we're in there, and it was a bogus. It it, it never should have been charged a murder. Somebody did die, but uh, I believe the the person was trying to rob my client, um, and my client was in the wheelchair. So he pulled up at his homie girl house that his homie was staying at for a little bit because uh, he was borrowing his homie car. And because they were in a crip neighborhood, my client and his homies was bloods. Uh, 
dude would come out, they smoked, and so this has been going on for a couple months. Uh, the the stepdad was an older crip dude. He was like, you know, working security job or whatnot. And my client's mom has passed. He got maybe like a quarter million in insurance money. So he had jury. Him and his boy had juries. My client had a six series. The other dude had a Dodge Challenger. So it's like this old, you know, broke crip dude in his 40s, approaching 50, got to see these 19, 20-year-old blood dudes. They say blood of every word. They get wearing red. And this your girl house, and this her daughter, so you can't say nothing to these dudes. You don't really have no standing to speak to these dudes. But um, you seeing them. And so ultimately what I believe is he had set up, he had called his other homie from his hood because he was a crip, but this was off 106 in Olive, so that's Broadway crip territory. His hood was the four Trey crips, so that's 43rd and further east. So, you know, real far away, um, but his homeboy, his little homie, he lived out in the Inland Empire, which is like 60 miles away, uh, but had some cousins that lived up the street. So he pop up at his cousin's house, now he walking down the street in black hoodie, black jeans, and red shoes with red shoestrings. So that put my clients on alert anyway. I'm in a crip neighborhood, dude walking up looking like this. Yeah. Something ain't right. Something ain't right. So I'm hoping he walking by the car. The car got limo tint. Dude stop at the car, knock on the window, and then, you know, he like go to lift up under his shirt. And once they saw the white under his shirt, from the undershirt, they just, you know, my client... I can say this now because he out. Uh, it, it, got, it handled, but my client, you know, pulled out, drew down, and bust on dude, and they got up out of there. Uh, and so the police made up a whole story that my clients who were bloods did a drive-by shooting on this dude because he had on red shoes. Now, mind you, we're in a crip neighborhood. Bloods just don't shoot suspected bloods in crip neighborhoods because yeah. you got on red shoes yeah. and it was uh they were like because they're close to this other hood denver lanes that his hood was having beef with now mind you there was beef but there were no bodies from that beef nobody died from that beef it was just niggas got into a fight at a party and yeah. that's what it was so uh they just made up that story but anyway dude in the passenger seat that was just sitting there smoking. Yeah. He took 26 years. Like they, they hadn't caught my client yet, right? Which was unbeknownst to me why they hadn't, because they knew who he was. They knew he he lived on a third story of a apartment building that did not have an elevator, and he was in a wheelchair. wheelchair right? yeah. And he had been on probation at that address before, so it's not like they didn't know who he was or where he was. But yeah. for whatever reason, they didn't come get him. So they end up uh, grabbing the one dude, and he take the – well, he got messed up because uh, I was in touch with his attorney, but then his attorney got disbarred, and they hired some dude that allowed him to take that 26 years, yeah. uh, saying that they had a witness that it was a drive-by shooting. Come to find out, the witness said, yeah, I, I seen it all. I uh, heard the shots, saw the guy fall, and the car drove off. That's what, what the witness said when the cop, and this is all recorded because the cop was recording the interview. When he goes back over it, he's like, oh, so you saw the car drive up, heard the shots, uh, car drove off, and that's it. And the witness is like, yeah, but he never said car drove up. 
So instead of the cop going back and just getting it right, he goes back and says, okay, these are your words, right? You saw the car drive up, such and such, so forth. And the guy's like, yep. Well, the problem is that was a white dude. And the only white people lived in this neighborhood, something was wrong with him. And he lived mm -hmm. in an assisted living facility because he yeah. had mental health issues and all of that. So I say all that to say they totally made up a story mm -hmm. uh, about why my clients would do this drive-by shooting on this other dude. And the dude took 26 years. Had he not taken nothing, he was supposed to go to trial, say my client did it. Um, but instead, he, he takes 26 years. So after our trial, they offer my client six years. He says, um, I'll take it, but you got to let the other dude out. And so the DA is like, well, have your client take it, and then we'll work on the other dude later. And this is what I told I said, look, man, you can resurrect Johnny Cochran. And this is talking to the assistant head deputy of the hardcore gang unit. Wow. I said, resurrect Johnny Cochran. You can put him on this case. We go back to trial. You still wouldn't get a conviction as long as you have somebody in prison for doing the crime that you saying my client committed. So if you really believe my client committed this crime, let this other dude out. Mm -hmm. And our conditions were let him out scot-free. Uh -huh. But they, instead of them going saying, hey, these guys are trying to get you out and he's gonna take, uh, take the responsibility for it, they go to him and like, hey, look, they, they trying to say you did it. So look, we'll let you out if you take an accessory after the fact charge, you'll get time served, you'll get out and be on parole. So, but you got to testify. And so dude agrees to testify against his homeboy that just got him out of prison. And wow. that was just the whole thing. So my client just ended up taking six years. Uh, but dude, you know, he, he did that and he can't even come back around no more. Nowhere in LA. Oh, wow. And that's just a, a, a crazy thing. But that just shows how much the system does not care about people. It's like, y'all know y'all got the wrong guy. But instead of just letting him off scot-free like he should have, because he really, he sat in the passenger seat where the driver did the shooting and they were sitting there. So it's not like they rolled up. He yeah. just come out the house. Uh, so, yeah, but the, the OG dude, he, he ended up getting killed. But I say all that to say one of my partners come in town like, man, my sister boyfriend died. Uh, they having a brief pass pull up. So I pull up. And the, the dude in the murder trial, his family was there for the whole trial, the dude that got killed. And first people I see when I pull up to this uh, repast is his family. Family, wow. And I'm like, oh shit. I'm just, I'm in there, I'm in trial calling him. You know, he's a thug, he's a gangster, he's yeah. this, he's that. I mean, they knew, but they was, they was some real folks, so they knew what it was. They would have wanted me to do it for they loved one if I was on the other side. But that's just an example of how close this is in this criminal gang yeah. in the black community, especially if you're working in the area that you came up in. Yeah. You're just gonna come across people and end up on different sides of things. And ultimately it's about who, who calls you first. That's, yeah. that's yeah. who side you end up on because you're unaware of all the other circumstances. Other circumstances, that's a fact, uh, yeah. But that's that's just yeah, it's that that's part of the practice that I could probably do without, but you know, it is what it is and it's, it's gonna be what it's gonna be. So what do you what do you love? Well let's start with what what do you hate about criminal now nah, let's start with what do you love about criminal practice? 
uh, what I love about it, um, we get to the point a lot quicker, right? Like if we're not waiving no time, trial's three months away, as opposed to civil practice. If you file a case in LA today, you're not gonna get a court date probably till 2022, a trial date. And you know, everything else up to that time, you're supposed to do discovery and all of that. But due to speedy trial rights, we're at most three months away from trial at any given time, unless you waive time. So that's what I like the most is like, you know, we get to the point, uh, discovery, you send the email, they got to turn over what you asked for in the email. You don't have to do no formal discovery. You do if they won't turn it over, then you have to do the formal discovery motions. Um, but that's, that's what I like about it the best. It's like, it's even when there, it is frivolous, it gets exposed real quick and you know whether it be through trial or a motion the case will get dismissed okay uh, so that that's what i like about it the most um what i like about it the least man i gotta go to jail i hate i, I do not like going in jails but um if i don't then i can't meet with my clients and you know prep for the case and support them the way they need to be supported while they're uh, fighting the case. Um, so those are like my, my two broad and then other things I say I didn't like, man, I, people talk about, um, you know, a few bad apples, the culture police lie in my experience more than they tell the truth. Um, and especially when it comes to black men, it's like, let just say what happened and let the chips fall where they may. But that's not the case. It's like they lie, 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 and nobody gets in trouble for it. We could expose them. Nobody gets in trouble for it. Uh, people get a suspension. Nobody gets in trouble for it. Uh, I got a case. They turned over Brady information on the cop. Cop, uh, uh, this, this woman said the cop uh, digitally penetrated her it was basically like, I'm the police. You can't, you just got to accept it. And she reported it like, not later, like right then. Mm -hmm. And they just didn't believe her. Uh, and he's still working. Whereas, you know, other people, if that happened, I've had clients where that's been the other way around, but we still got to go through the whole case uh, just, just to prove it. So just fighting that, that system where it's not about justice, it's about making sure the department can't get sued. So if that means justifying an illegal arrest, uh, that if that means justifying an excessive use of force, then we'll do it. Because if we, if we acknowledge it was an illegal arrest or acknowledge it was an excessive use of force, then we're acknowledging our civil liability. And um, that's what it is. And the officers know that and they promote that and you know, LAPD, whenever I'm on a panel with them, they talk about, well, we have this procedure set up and we have this procedure and it's true. But then I bring up an article from a couple of years ago where they had like 1300 complaints of uh, racial bias by LAPD officers and zero of them were found uh, to be credible. Incredible, wow. Yeah, so it's like that, working in that system and dealing with people and then, um, it was a politician out here. I remember a few years ago, uh, 
this might have been like 2011, 2012 when he was running. I'm like, man, you need to get get on uh, what Nipsey and them is doing. They got some things. They got some dope stuff going, man. We could probably work together because he was young. I'm like, man, we could just buck the system and change the game, and this is how we'll do it. Yeah. He's like, ah, well, let's wait after the elections because I don't want the the police unions to to pull their support of me, yeah. and you know that kind of thing. Um, and that uh, you know that. That just kind of was what it was, but it it just shows the power that these police unions have. And so I say that to say, I can't necessarily go to the black politicians for support on this issue because they're worried about not getting police endorsements when the election times comes up. Got you. You knew Nipsey? You knew Nipsey personally? I had uh, met him a couple times. The first time it was actually... uh, well, first time I saw him, I just happened across this party. Like I said, I'm from Inglewood. The gang in the neighborhood I grew up in mainly was uh, Inglewood family. Uh, um, and what's, what's crazy about that, I was from a clique called 80s. But, you know, in the gangs, there's different sets. And in the Inglewood families, there's four sets. 80s is one of them. I thought I was being from a clique until these niggas started getting out of prison. Like, oh, y'all from 80s, huh? And it was all fun and games until uh, 10th grade year, one of the couple of the homies got shot. And that's when everybody kind of made their choice, whether you was going gang bang or, you know, just hang out with your friends. Inglewood well, um, family is what, a blood set? Blood set, which is just south of the Rolling 60s. So the Inglewood families, their, their furthest north set is a 77. And the 60s go from the 60s into the 70s. So their hoods are right next to each other. So they're like mortal enemies to the point Rolling 60s' biggest crip rival is A-Trey Gangsters. And A-Trey Gangsters is the next hood east of the Inglewood families. Because 83rd, Inglewood family, 77, 80th, 9 deuce, 9 foe. So just across Van Ness, uh, on one side of Van Ness, on the west side of Van Ness, you're in the city of Inglewood in the 80s. On the east side of Van Ness, you're in the city of Los Angeles in the 80s. And on the east side, you have the A-Trey Gangster Crips. And on the west side, you got the Inglewood families. So the Inglewood families and A-Trey's, although one is blood, one is Crips, they had a certain alliance uh-huh. to the common enemy who is the Rolling 60 Crips. And that's where and Nipsey so, was rolling 60s, right? And that's where Nipsey's from. Yeah. And so now me growing up, where I grew up, I had a lot of homies who was from 60s just because of the schools I went to. Uh, uh, I only went to one Inglewood school um, the whole time I lived there. So that was my thing. But the, so I saw him, my partner invited me to this party in Lamert Park uh, at the spot called the Regency West. And I'm running, I go in, and I'm dapping up a couple of the homies I see there, but they all looking at me like, nigga, why is you here? This is like a rolling 60 crit party. It ain't like. <laughs> so Dipsy on stage performing, that was my first time even seeing the world, hearing of the dude. Uh-huh. Then um, in 2010, I was studying for the bar. It was the time I passed, uh, February 2010 bar, but also All-Star Weekend was in LA. And you know, that's like, uh, the bar is like the 24th, 25th, and 26th, and All-Star Weekend was like around February 10th, around that time. 
Yeah. So I'm like, I'm studying hard. I'm like, I know I'm a pass this time. And uh, but I'm not missing All Star Weekend, so I ain't do nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so I ain't do nothing January, the beginning of February, and then I just said, "Fuck, we out All Star Weekend." And so DJ Fats was up at uh, LA Live, where Staples Center is. He had me mix uh, the Marathon mixtape, and so that was February, and that's it. Really helped me get through because it was man. I'm like, it was my sixth time taking the bar. Based on music from this nigga from 60s. Yeah. And it's uh so that's when I really got on. And then later on that year, I ran into Nipsey in uh Manhattan Beach. One of his partners, BH, is one of my homeboys. Uh we used to go to the same church. And um that's so I ran into him on Miami Beach, and then later on, like a month and a half before he passed, I ended up helping keep one of his artists out of out of uh custody. And uh, he came through, so it's me and the artist and Nip and Nip attorney in a little huddle figuring out how we gonna do it. And so, you know, I was able to help keep him out um, until the next time. So that was my last interaction. So at that moment, I'm like, okay, cool. Now, uh, he, he I'm, I'm proud of what he's doing because he's Grammy nominated at that point, right? It was like the night after the Grammys. He, niggas showed up in the same suits they had on at the yeah. Grammys <laughs> for court the next day. Yeah. But uh, that was like, you know, mid-February and then March 31st, he was gone. And it, it really, man, that, that really messed me up, bro. Like, yeah. cause I was, I was just happy we had, we had the movement set up. We had all the pieces in place. We got TDE and them in Compton doing their thing. We got Nipsey on this side doing this thing. Cats and Inglewood was getting their stuff together. I was like, bam, we got a movement going on. And, you know, this shit happened. And yeah. that, that, that really sent me out. That was, I had a lot of, I had some other things that happened, a couple of rests and whatnot, but that was the straw that broke the camel's back as far as um, me recognizing uh, all the stress that I'm dealing with through the practice, through being a young black man, through having these arrests. That's what finally made me, uh, I, I had my first therapy session maybe like February 10th, 11th. Uh, and he was killed March 31st. So wow. it was like, that's, and I've been, in, I've, I didn't, it was like my favorite hour of the week. You know, I just told her like, I ain't coming back until I can see you face to face because it's FaceTime therapy. Okay, so you still, you still doing therapy? Still doing it, man. I, I mean, it's, I get re-traumatized often. Right. So this this is this is just now a part of my life. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm happy it's not too expensive. It's about five hundred a month. Yeah. But um it's just something that, you know, I need to just dealing with the home. I'm I'm too close to it. I'm much closer than most people. Um, being that I still live uh, uh right, the the uprising popped off from Florence and Normandy. It's 0.6 miles from my house, like where I live now. Yeah. You know, I'm still there. These are still my friends. I'm a small town dude who just happened to be from a big city. So I'm I'm still in the mix. I hear the helicopters every night. Uh, whenever I'm driving down Florence, going to the freeway, I always see somebody stop, usually pulling over, making sure things don't go too crazy with folks. I'll be running the cops I see. Yeah, talk about the, that, that video went viral. Well, it, 
Yeah, yeah. Video go viral. Talk about that situation. I was uh, a unique situation where I was coming, uh, I was coming out of a studio. Um, I was doing a show. Uh, it's called like Gang Talks. I think is the name of the show uh, with a brother Skip Townsend. Uh, and lead the hair on Skip Townsend. He's blood. He was actually my. We met because he testified in my first gang case as a gang expert. Um, but they have a, a podcast that they do at a studio, uh, more studios. Uh, shout out to the poetists. Um, and so I'm coming out the alley after doing a show talking about like these kind of issues, right? And I see these dudes in the uh, car and I got to drive by him and I'm like, you know, y'all good. Uh, I'm, I'm an attorney. Y'all rise me a story. They like, Hey, Hey, well, yeah, man, they just messed with us. They got us pulled over. I'm like, all right. So I go park legally cause I've done this before and I actually got arrested. So I'm like, let me just keep put my car somewhere that if I get arrested, I gotta, you know, somebody could come pick it up or something. Yeah. So I um, come back, show my bar card. I'm like, hey, you know, if if they, you know, this is an investigation, this is my clients now. Um, so direct all your line of questioning to me. They end up pulling everybody out the car. They don't let me talk to the dudes. Uh, and I'm like, you know, just let me know the probable cause for the search so I can let them know. And, you know, we'll, we'll get it. And then, uh, like six more cars pull up, uh, cops, all these other cops is out there. And so before I, I was out there for like 20 minutes before I turned, I went on live, right? I was trying to talk to him, trying, I'm like, look, these are the laws. This is the, cause we have a law in the books, penal code 825B that says if somebody's detained and they request to see an attorney and you keep that attorney from them, you're convict you're guilty of a misdemeanor the officer and so only cops can be convicted of this crime so i'm telling them that i'm i'm telling their own policy um yeah i remember that yeah yeah so i'm I'm going through there where they like you know once somebody asks for an attorney it's not post booking it's like bam you gotta let them know so they're not listening to me so i'm that's when i get on live like look man somebody this is where we at these cops out here, they not following the laws. And I'm telling them like, how you expect me to get these young men to follow the laws when the people charged with enforcing the laws won't follow the laws? Like y'all making things worse. And then so after they searched them and let them go, they're like, oh, they not tripping, they got let go. I'm like, yeah, they not tripping because they happy they not going to jail. But that don't mean they happy about what you did to them. You just violated their rights. And so we just had that little back and forth. And you know, I'm, I was literally doing it because I didn't know what else to do. I didn't know who else to call. So I'm like, this is the quickest thing that came to my mind. I didn't try texting other sergeants, whatnot. I knew nobody was getting back, and that's when I went viral. It wasn't like I was trying to. I had, oh, this gonna go viral. It wasn't that. It was just like maybe y'all can see somebody. Maybe somebody sees this and sends some help to me right now. That yeah. was the mindset behind it. Got you. Yeah, you got to send me that link when um, so I can put it in the show notes so people can see it. Because it got like, what, millions of views, right? Is that millions yeah, of views? Yeah, yeah. It got millions of views on one website, then that website went down, and then. Yeah. Uh, it's still on YouTube, website. though, right? It's probably still on YouTube. It's on YouTube. Yeah, it's, I think you can still find it on YouTube. It's like okay. Lawyer Once 
uh, answers from LAPD or something like that, I, I'd have to look the link up. All right, if you, if, you, if, you, if you got it, send it to me. If you don't, don't worry about it. Uh, I'll probably try to find it. But um, let's talk about, you, you, say, you, you said the bar took you six times to pass? Yeah, yeah, man. And talk we about, know, once talk. again, down to that m- maturity. Uh, talk about, yeah, know. talk about the mishaps, why you think you failed, the grit, the determination to even keep going. Talk about that. Talk about a little bit about well, that. One, um, you know, I started preschool like two, three years old, right? And now I'm a, a law school graduate at 24 with no breaks, right? So preschool, yeah. kindergarten. 12 years, four years of undergrad, three years of law school, man, I just, I, w- I was a little burnt out. Um, yeah. I think that was probably the main thing. And at the time I had a lot of book smarts. I did all this formal education, but my life experience for, especially for what I was going to do, um, wasn't where it needed to be. Like when I was at home, People knew me, but I was at home on break. So I was chilling when I was at home for that, you know, for my whole adult life up to that point. And just so you know where my mindset was, um, bar results came out November 16th. My birthday is November 18th. So I was, I threw this big 25th birthday party, you know, uh, the Kanye West, the graduation album that came out earlier that year. And when I heard the song Good Life, I was like, this might have been March or April. But I'm like, yo, that's the thing for my 25th birthday. It's the good life. I'm going to be, you know, back from school. So this was like my welcome home, my graduation, and my 25th birthday, and my past the bar celebration all in one. So, uh, and the plan was um, I was going to pass the bar that Friday night, you know, go out to dinner with my girl at the time. And then that next morning before my party, I was going to go to the dealership and get me a coupe. I don't know which one, whatever, probably like a dollar. Your brother, your brother, like, yo, I didn't teach him nothing. Yeah. Nah, nothing at all. <laughs> at this time. Yeah. He actually DJ my party. Cause his DJ name at the time was DJ Slapperho. It's, it's crazy. Right? <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. That was his name. <laughs> Yeah, so he was he was on the financial stuff early back then or not? No, 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 because he was still getting money. It was because I was oh seven. He got on the financial stuff in uh like around oh nine because um oh seven. You know the market was booming, uh, and like early oh eight, he put like a hundred thousand down on a half a million dollar townhouse out in the valley, and then like. That was oh early oh eight and like by early oh nine that home was worth like three twenty five or something. So I think I read I read that in one of his books. I think he told that story. Yeah, yeah. and that's when so he went into that depression, read himself out of it, and that's what got him on it. Gotcha. Um, uh, so yeah, he thought so that's a true story. So he because he talked about it. It's in one of his books. I don't know which one yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. I I read like yeah, two or three what, of his books. That's what got him there. So. At that, my plan, go get a coupe. Then I was going to go downtown and I was going to get a chain and then like a watch and a bracelet. And this was all on. So what, well, so what happened with the South, this is at the South Africa though, man. So you just was, but I, you know, I was, I had lost, you know, I'm 24, 25. 
I'm a law school graduate. You know what I'm saying? I'm back home. I had a job. I was just, in my mind, I was just super on. Like this, and so, and the whole point, I probably didn't really want all those things. If I was to do that now, I would have rented it. I mean, I ultimately didn't do it because I didn't pass the bar, but I would have rented everything just because it was really just so I could show up at the party with the jewels and the car and just stunting on there. That's like, that was the mindset that I was in gotcha. at the time. So, yeah. you know, although I was still, you know, the clothes I bought was fitted, <laughs> you know, yeah, that yeah. was, uh, but other than that, it was, you know, that was still the mindset at the time. I was still very immature. And so that's why it's, it's, it's really a good thing, I think, to, uh, at this point, I would have loved to pass my first time, don't get me wrong, but you wouldn't have been able to tell me nothing at, at that time. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, that was that, and the beautiful, and, and then when I found out I didn't pass, you know, I still went to dinner, I was down, but luckily I had that party, because it was like 200 people came, it was open bar, uh, had the, it was the open buffet, it was only like chicken wings, though, um, and it was at the homie. That's not a buffet, yo. That's just chicken wings. You can't say that's not a buffet. It was a little more than buffet. That was like the main dish was chicken yeah, wings. Chicken it was like maybe some spaghetti, some salad, you yeah. know, like stuff like that. But, you know, for a 25-year-old, open bar. just yeah. uh, And it was open bar because I had it at a barbershop. And, you know, barbershops, the liquor man come through every week. Yeah. So for the months preceding, I was just buying bottles, buying bottles, buying bottles. Uh, so it was, it was, it was a dope experience because people got to let me know, like, although you ain't passed, bro, we still love you. We still proud of you. I can't take the bar. You took the bar. I can't take, I can't sign up to take the bar. Yeah. And then that made me feel good, but it also made me feel like, well, maybe I don't need to rush nothing. So the next few bar attempts wasn't real prep. It was just like me decompressing because I was 07. I think in 08, I still took it kind of serious. Um, uh, when I took the the summer, the uh, February 08 bar, um, I, I took that serious, but when I didn't pass again, and when I, when I was taking it serious, but not serious to the degree I needed to take it serious, right? Because I had never not passed a test before. Um, so, you know, I wasn't doing the full-fledged studying. Like, I was like, well, you know, they, it's, it might be five, ten thousand issues they could test me on, but they only test me on a few hundred. And so I'm going to study what they think they're going to test me on. And I never, it was like a gamble. And yeah. I never studied what they actually tested us on. So yeah. I always did good on the multiple choice, but the writing just had me problem. I was, I was vexed. So... It wasn't until 2009 that I, I got the big Barbie outline for the MBE subjects and then the, the uh, smaller Barbie outline for all the other subjects. Um, and I read, it was 800 total pages that I read. And while I was going through it, just to help me get through it, I was keeping time. And it was an average of about eight minutes a page because I was not moving to the next word until I fully understood the word that I had just read. So some pages might only take me two, three minutes to get through, like Krim Law, I already understood that. Yeah. Uh, but other parts, it might take me 10, 15 minutes to get through. And so the average was eight minutes. So, you know, it was like 6,400 minutes of reading. 
plus about 2,000 MBEs that I, I didn't just read the wrong answers. I read all the answers and mm -hmm. all the explanations for all the answers. Yeah. And then I had done about... That, and you, it took you to 09 to realize you need to do that? Yeah. Well, <laughs> this, well I got... I remember um, I, I had a job. I was working gotcha, gotcha. as a uh, pair, as a law clerk for the public defender's office. And then after the second time I didn't pass, they hired me on because the law clerk program ended by this time, you know, they waiting on the next crop to come in. So um, at that point I got hired on as a paralegal, which was a permanent position. Mm. And then I had like, the 980 work schedule so like every other friday off i had benefits i was getting money every 15th and every 30th and even though i was making like 30 dollars an hour you know before that the most i had ever made was like 12 dollars an hour gotcha gotcha so, All right. you know, my, my, i was deferring my student loans which i i didn't need to i just did because i wanted to travel so like i said i took 08 uh that next year serious uh, and then that third time I took it, that was basically like me just rolling the dice. I ain't even fully care. I, I just, I, I was burnt out um, from studying and all that. And so then 2009, I, I took like 20, it was like 22 trips in 2009. And, and I took the bar twice that year, uh, but still took 22 trips. And 22 trips about 18 of them were, were flights. So I, I got, I got uh, executive platinum status that year on, uh, on American Airlines, right? And I started, part of it, I started the year out the country. Remember I told you I did New Year's oh, yeah, in, no, South in South Africa, Africa. and that kind of just did something to me. Yeah. First time doing New Year's out the country. And so I, um, I just went everywhere, man. But, uh, remembering the Good Life song when uh, Kanye was like, it feels like L.A., it feels like N.Y., summertime shy. I was like, well, I, I completed that whole song. Every city he named in that song, I did all of it. It was my first time in Chicago. It was my first time in Houston. Um, and then I was also trying to finish the Pimping All Over the World song. And the only spots I got left to go there, I got to go to Japan, I got to go to Germany. I got to go to the Virgin Islands. And those are the last three spots because I, I went to Jamaica a couple years ago. So those are the last three spots and I will have completed the whole Pimpin' All Over the World song. Yo, that is um, hilarious, yo. Yeah, but that, I mean, hip hop really influenced me. It was, yeah. bro, when I went to South Africa, the 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 people that went the year before I came back, uh, like Claren and Chuck and all of them was like, yo, it was dope, it was dope. So. But I'm still like getting a passport. All that was so foreign to me. I didn't think it was possible. So it's in my uh, 2L year, the beginning of my 2L year. I'm watching the ludicrous pimping all over the world video. Yeah. And it was once I I, I was like, man, I was shot on location in South Africa. Yeah, yeah. He said he said something. No, one of the lyrics that says that. Yeah. None of the models. Yeah. Oh, I was watching video. I was taking out my hair. My hair was half braided. I stopped went to the post office and got my passport oh, wow. and signed up for the South Africa program. Wow. And then my next, my next international trip, shout out to big Snoop Dogg and Pharrell for that beautiful video. Brazil. 
Rio was my yeah. next international yeah. trip. So yeah, you know, I'm I'm heavily influenced by hip hop to say the least. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that's what it was. And I felt like I needed to do that. I needed to go through some things. I needed to experience life. I needed to travel. And so once I got that out of my system, I ended up passing the February 2010 bar, okay. which happened to also be the last time that I had the opportunity to pass before I had my 10-year high school reunion and call it vanity, whatever, but I wasn't going to show up just having not passed the bar yet to my 10-year uh, high school reunion. And gotcha. so, yeah, we did that, man, and it was just a, you know, it's been on and cracking. But I still didn't start my practice till 2013 because, remember, the economy at that time, you know, and once again, I was that was all credit. I didn't have the cash to pay off all that traveling. I was just like, I'm pay this shit off next year. Uh, but this year, I'm I'm traveling. I'm out. I'm putting the whole trip on the credit card, and when I get paid, I'm spending all that cash. I ain't. <laughs> like, your brother, your brother, like yo, no. But yeah, well, now this is the time period that he's just getting into it. Right? it. Yeah, yeah. He's just learning it, and so now in 2010, um, uh, I start paying off because now I'm going to the World Cup. Uh, that was the other thing I, I wanted to go to the World Cup in South Africa, mm-hmm. and so uh, I kind of manipulated my whole work thing because I was working the sexually violent predator unit. And let me tell you that that was a very difficult unit to work in because my job, the sexually violent predator unit is not for people who are charged with rape or molestation as a new offense. But in California, we have the sexually violent predator act that says before you get out of prison for this rape or molestation you've been convicted of, we send in a psychiatrist and a psychologist. And Mm. if they agree that you're likely to reoffend, then you have to go and have a civil commitment trial to wow. see if we can let you out. This so way. I was in that unit. Uh, so, and as the paralegal, our job was to babysit the clients. So I'm talking to, you know, people who have been charged with rape and molestation and all of that. Um, but even in that, I still found racial injustice, right? Because at the public defender's office, we had about 150 clients. It was maybe 160, but somewhere in there about, uh, it was like 55 were Latino, like maybe 45 were white, and then like 40 were black, and then 10 were just other, you know, uh, Native American and whatnot. Now, with the whites, two-thirds of the white clients were in there for molestation. Three-fourths of the Latino clients were in there for molestation. And nine out of the 10 others were in there for molestation. But for the blacks, two thirds were in there for rape. Now there's science behind pedophilia, right? Like you can get that diagnosis and now it means you're sexually attracted to prepubescent children. Children, um, And that was the other thing I had to learn about all the paraphilias and all these mental health issues that go into this stuff. Um, But for the, there was no real science behind what makes somebody rape, right? So they always characterize it as paraphilia NOS, which is not otherwise specified. And even though blacks didn't rape at a higher rate than whites, that's what kept blacks as part of that is the rapes. 
uh, even though they were opportunity crimes. Like I had one client, he didn't go in there to rape the woman. He went in to burglarize the home. And when the woman was there, he was like, you know, he had issues. He looked at women as property. So raping her was the same as uh, stealing her TV. You know, I was just yeah. stealing another object, not to condone it, but I'm saying yeah, that's I'm what saying that is. Psychology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and that can be overcome, you know, typically with AIDS and some services as it relates to, to that. Um, but those were the kind of clients we were having black. So I went to the attorneys like, hey, I just noticed this. I did the numbers. Here's a spreadsheet. Nobody wanted to bring it up when, when yeah. arguing these cases. Like, you know, when at least using it to cross-examine the psychiatrist, because these were some of the same psychiatrists, and it was a money racket, man. These psychiatrists was getting a million dollars a year off these damn evaluations, man. It was crazy. Crazy. Uh, but, you know, but then once again, what politician is going to stand up for the rapists and the molesters? Yeah, like, zero. Yeah, that's, that's, like, no, that's no win battle right there, yo. Yeah, so it's like, yeah, there's some racial injustice going on here, but they're rapists and molesters. So nobody cares. Like, hey, um, But that, that was... But being in that unit also gave me the freedom to do all of that traveling that I was doing. Gotcha. Uh, so that was the, the trade-off. And then once I went to South Africa for the World Cup, you know, I was able to get myself out of that unit, but the economy was slow. Then I got messed over for uh, a promotion. The first time they did open back up, I needed an 88.5 on the exam to get hired. And it's an interview exam. So the dude gave me an 88, and then after that, I just you know stayed around for a little bit, tried a couple times, almost became a DA. I was real close to becoming a DA. I made it to the final round of interviews. It's like 1,400 people applied for 44 spots, and I was interviewed. I was about to be hired, but I told the DA, Steve Cooley, at the time, it was the end of the interview, I knew I killed it. And he was like, well, anything else? And if I really wanted the job, I probably would have just said no. But I was like, you know, I'm, look, I'm really looking forward to putting away these criminals, especially the ones in uniforms that violate the public trust. <laughs> and he was like, like nope. He was like, uh, well, good luck with that. And that was it. Um, that was the last I heard from the DA's office. So, uh and then, you know, I ended up starting my own practice. My my partner, Terrence, best friend at the time, he called me, he had got wrongfully arrested. And that's that was my first case. My uh, He got wrongfully arrested. Then a few days later, my homeboy's pops, who I was helping him with his campaign, he was running for state assembly, he passed away. And I was like, all right, these are the signs that, that show me I don't need to waste no more time. Even though I had that 980 work schedule regular pay. Uh, but what I will say, I followed my brother's strategy in 2011 uh, after all the traveling. I, I, even 2010, I started paying off the credit cards. I probably had like 20,000 in credit card that I started paying it off in 2010, but credit's like crack. And so when I went back to South Africa for the World Cup and I swiped that card one time, it was like that whole repayment plan was out the door. Yeah. And I, I went into 2011 with about 20000 in credit card debt. Um, but then that's when I was focused on uh, following my brother's dream. So I gave myself a $120 a week social budget. And with 1000 I was getting like 1600 a check, uh, both checks, 1600 1700 a check. 
and uh, I would take a thousand from each check to pay off my credit card. So two thousand a month. Uh, I started December thirtieth, and I paid everything off. October fifteenth was the last payment, and then I closed. Thanks, and I, I closed on my house uh, November first. Nice, um, nice, nice. So even though I didn't, I didn't think I was going to be able to be a homeowner years down the line, but I was staying with my folks. They had to move because the 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 owner had made the building to a four unit when it was only zoned for a two unit. So due to LA rent control rules. Uh, they would have either had to put my parents up in a hotel or similar housing while they redid it and then charge them the same exact rent or they got to pay them to move. So they chose to pay them to move and it was like damn near $20,000. So at this time I had immaculate credit. They had the down payment. My partner and because of my uh, job and the amount of money I made, my partner who was my realtor got me in a program that uh, you know, you put down three and a half percent for the FHA, FHA, but I got a grant for the three percent. So we only had to come out the pocket that half percent. Yeah. And so I bought my house for uh, two sixty five in twenty eleven, and you know now we're about to take a hit. But right now, if I was to sell my house today, like it would go for like five fifty. Oh, that's what's uh, up, yeah. Yeah, yeah we got some good equity in that. That was that was a good thing. And then it just is, even though it's my house, uh, my parents and my grandmother stayed there. So it's like, you know, they invest a lot in me. Uh, but the thing, even though my parents had this education at that time, it wasn't really no money in the struggle, which is another reason why I'm an attorney is because I wanted to participate in the struggle. I just didn't want to be broke while I was doing it. And so, you know, that's what it is. So my parents don't have a lot of money but they have a lot of social capital and they have their their pride intact they never sold out uh so and now it worked out for them you know it's basically like subsidizing them uh and they they don't have to go nowhere because that where i live now it's like the seventh place that i lived in la um and uh, so you know it's just a beautiful thing and we're able to keep it going and you know that's that yeah, we've been recording for a minute, man. We got. I, I, I realize gotta, that, man. We just. Yeah, we gotta. No, but we gotta. You gotta promise to do it again, man. This is good, man, because we didn't even get into your politics. We didn't get into the Trump, the gun rights. We man, didn't. we didn't. Yeah, we didn't talk about when I got arrested in Nevada. Arrested. We uh, gotta go through all of that. So you got. We gotta do a part two, man. We might. Yeah. We might be able to do. I mean, I don't know what your schedule like. Uh, well, we got to do that because I want to explain to you, you know, when I got, did I send you the video when I got the video. That was, that was on my list to talk about, but we went through, that's yeah, on my, yeah, it's yeah, literally yeah. on my list right here, yeah? But we were going to yeah. talk about that. I'm, I'm yeah. deep, brother. I, I got a lot going on. This, but now nah, this was good because, um, like I said, like I didn't know that about your background. So like for me, like now when I see you post, not necessarily I, I'll be thinking you troll, I'm like, yo, everybody got their politics. But I understand where it comes from. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and, yeah. And we yeah, didn't have this conversation. Yes, man. I'm I'm really uh on this abolitionist, like I, I really want to see our people free. And as a political scientist, I know the only way people ever got free in America is by shooting it out and gaining their freedom. And that's you know how right, I got we're gonna end it. We're gonna end it right there. We're gonna end it right Let's there. Do it. And, and you're gonna you're gonna, you're gonna you're gonna come back, right? And do part two.
it changed. And I got back and and cats like in the barbershop be selling clothes. Like, uh, man, y'all got some fitted clothes? Like, nah, I man, you know, I, I sell clothes for black people. <laughs> like, talk about me, because I wear fitted clothes now, man. delicious in that alley behind that building over there you know the building with the sign they're searching the car i've been out here for about 20 minutes asking for the reasonable suspicion for the detention they have these young men being detained all of them they haven't told me the reasonable suspicion or the proper cause for the search they disallowed me from investigating the case i haven't been able to do my investigation and they said I couldn't do my investigation under threat of being arrested for Penal Code Section 148A1. But they're all over here. They're, they're all over here. They, they won't give me the, the reasonable suspicion for the detention. And they keep, like, this is going on right now. I just got off doing a radio show, and it's going on about these kind of issues. My conversation with Tingarides, I guess, didn't make it to Southwest yet. And now I'm over here, and I'm trying to get these young men to believe in the system, and the system is being violated right now. I, how, how can I say believe in this system? It works for you. Go get a degree. Didn't they follow the law? I know. And this is the thing. There's the way it works, if you don't sign it, then, they, then they'll arrest you. That's it. Well, I can't talk to you now. You now you saying you're about to arrest him, so now I can I can talk to him now, right? What about what about your LAPD volume? Volume 4, 650.10. Okay, but you're interrupting my investigation. I have a bar card. That gives me a right to investigate as soon as you start your investigation. Once he's in jail, then you can go and talk to him all you want. I need to do my investigation right now. No, they wasn't talking. It's been 20 minutes. They haven't been talking to him. They won't let me talk to him. How? How? Once How? They're, they're not talking to us. They're done. How? They will release them to you. How? No, I, I would like. I would like to know what the what the what, what Can somebody give me the proper cause for the search? Can somebody explain that for me? And then how we gonna get people to respect the law if y'all won't follow the law? Right, like I'm. It's, it's really happening. Like I, I tried to be the lawyer and, and represent. I just happened to be coming down the street. Seeing the client, yeah, I'm trying to man, and all four of them is in. Ain't nobody told me why they was even stopped. This is crazy. This is going on like right now, like right now. It's, it's happening. It's like, man, this is this is how we treat. And when you wonder why young black men don't feel like they're part of the system, that they're represented by the system, this is why. This is why. I can sit here. 
And, or maybe we're not training the officers right because none of them seem to know that they got to let me talk to the client once they detain me. None of them know that. None of them know. And it's in that policy. I told you, volume 4, 650.10, it's in that policy. And the Constitution, Fifth Amendment. You got a right. You got a right to remain silent. Implicit of that is, is, the, is the right to counsel. They over here asking questions, doing all this, but they won't let me talk to the client and advise them what's going on. This is this is this is really going on right now. This is ridiculous. And I've been cool talking to him. The cop know me. I've cross-examined him before, so you know I'm a legitimate attorney, and I still can't do it. This is crazy, man. Who, like, like, what can we do about it? Like, I'm, I don't, I'm, I'm paid to give answers, and I don't have no answers. Constitution, they took an oath to protect. Not one of them. It's crazy. 